All right. Um, I wanted somebody very close to me um, brought up a subject that has something to do with religion. Originally, I was going to have my last religion episode be earlier, but you know, it's all good because this will definitely be my last one. You know, no disrespect to um, that person's very close to me, but um, I had to bring this up because this is super important. So, this is my last mentioning of religion in this episode for sure. Um, it's just that. It, it's so it's so it, it matters so much to bring it up because there's still a uh, religion hijacking going on um, how can you say that you're Christian but y'all but Christians in the ancient era have a history of having pagans face murderous persecution and then take pagan rituals and turn them into Easter and Christmas. That doesn't make any sense. And then on top of that, I don't understand in religion, I see attack mode, defense mode, blame gaming, finger pointing. I see um, a fear of being challenged. Um, I see a fear of admitting that the church has failed the people. Instead of saying, okay, let's grow, let's evolve, let's be better and do better. What I'm saying is that people stay in defense mode. These things happen not just in religion, of course outside of it, but I'm seeing it most in religion. So let's start this way. Christian today, Jandela Benson, three ways the church has failed us. Are the numbers of churchgoers in this country growing or shrinking? I don't know, and I'm sure someone somewhere has a survey results, but when I think about the growth and slash decline of the church, I think about it on a more personal level. Christianity was given to me, and I've given it back once or twice. I've had my questions, conflicts, and crises of faith, but somehow I've managed to hang in there. On the other hand, I've had a lot of friends turn their back on the faith they grew up with or discovered in their adolescence. This has led to conversation at length within the both of the Christians trying to work out why they may not meet. Each person has their own reason for late disillusion and their often wants and conflicts. Again, this is written by Jindela Benson, November 7, 2015, Lebanon. Um, however, I found that there are a number of things that come with the reason the company stories and that are three in particular that keep reoccurring. One, the shunning of critical thought. Throughout history, Christianity has been blessed to have some great thinkers in its ranks from Sawyer and Kierkegaard to C.S. Lewis. It's been proven that critical thought spiritual faith can be complementary bedfellows, but when it comes to a lot of modern churches, 
you'd be forgiven for thinking that quote unquote ignorance is bliss was the eleventh commandment. There are too many churches where any curious challenge or genuine question about scripture, teaching, or Christian tradition is seen almost as a direct attack on church leadership, even faith itself. I have friends who have been branded as spiritually rebellious for interrogating something they've been told rather than silently accepting it without question. Evaluating arguments, examining rhetoric, and intellectual investigation is not the antithesis of our faith. It's actually an important principle. The Apostle John tells the early church to quote-unquote test the spirits while Paul commands Timothy to quote-unquote study to show yourself approved. The truth is not so fragile that it needs to be shielded from inquiring minds. If we believe something to be true, it should stand up to a bit of scrutiny. Two, not challenging the culture. Once upon a time, Christianity was institutionally challenging. It rattled the establishment and changed the course of history. Now the church is the institution. It seems preoccupied with maintaining its position in a shifting society rather than seriously challenging, challenging itself or anyone else. Historically, the church has been guilty of pandering to power in order to maintain its position on the totem pole. In these days, it seems that a general complacency renders it blind to its privilege and slow to take charge in changing its culture and the culture that exists within for the better. While we are happy to piously pick up the pieces of a broken society, we shy away from fighting the structures that create it. We talk about renewing our minds, but practice silent conformity. At the very best, this exposes the church to be clueless, out of touch, and ineffective. At the worst, it builds the church to be steeped in hypocrisy and complacency. Either way, the gospel we proclaim rings hollow. Three. Selling dreams instead of equipping for reality. The first obvious incarnation of this is prevalent of churches that are essentially centers for motivational speech with life coach rhetoric repackaged appropriately. The sermons sound like a life hack article and any failure in achieving your desired outcome is really a reflection of your core faith. No exchanges or refunds. There are also the churches that are ideologically the polar opposite where you are led to disengage completely by holding on to the hope of heaven or Jesus' return and ignoring the chaos that surrounds you. Any concern that does not relate to quote-unquote spiritual matters is deemed a carnal distraction, something to be swept aside, repented of, or just prayed away. Both these approaches rely on simplistic answers to issues of life in their single vision lenses aren't realistic ways to view the world or faith. Both attitudes turn the gaze, JCE, selfishly inward and away from really the delicate mess of other people as well as ourselves, while also setting up individuals to experience heartbreaking disappointment in one form or another. The presence of one or more of these misconceptions undermines the power of personal faith for the individual, if that faith is survived at all. While our hope is always meant to be in Jesus and our constitution, it is through the church that we get our impressions of God whether from the pulpit or through interaction with those who claim to be his people. That is why dissolution is not simply a problem to be tackled by the struggle of the but a pressing concern for the church body and its leadership. I also want to be able to say that I see in church that there's a lot of people who are performing for each other, pulpits and congregations. 
they're not performing for God, they're performing in front of God. And often what I see is preachers and parishioners taking turns trying to be entertainers instead of learning from God and growing from God. I see preachers and parishioners trying to be uh, comedians and uh, platinum selling album singers and soul trade dancers instead of truly being sold out for God because you know that it's God's will and it's the right thing to do. Often in church, they don't do things because it's right, nor because of God's will, but because of the fear of hell. And the fear of hell is stronger than the love of God in church. What I see in church is that a lot of church people are controlled by politicians. What I see in church is that the fear of the removal of tax exemption is one of the reasons why some people get healed some people don't. Some people get set free and some people don't. And some people get um delivered and some don't. I'll give you an example. Let's say I have rape survivors in my church and I'm the pastor. A big reason why a pastor would say anything, a lot of them, is because they are rapists and rape apologists in the church. So... I'm scared to confront and combat my sex crime cult congregation. So oftentimes you have to preach against the very people that are right in front of you, but they won't do that because the congregation is their God. The congregation dictates what they will and will not preach about. They don't believe that God takes care of them. They believe that only their congregation can take care of them. God will bless them with milk. They want milk Christian money. 
they don't want mature Christian money because mature Christians will actually go, let me run this by the Lord before I give my money. Wow. Sad to say, the milk ones will go, hey, it has religious language, says ministers, I'll just give it to them. Even if they support Vladimir Putin, even if they support Donald Trump, I will still give them my money. Hey, they're against abortion, homosexuality, fornication. So, yeah. But Jesus is against dictatorship. Jesus is against authoritarianism. Jesus is against totalitarianism. Wow. Wow says it all. So, I also want to talk about the churchandstate.org.uk article by Mike Maggi, August 21st, 2010. Christian atrocities, three centuries of pagan persecution. To, to help counter Christians in denial, a Greek correspondent, Florence Arctios, has submitted the following chronology of Christian persecution, especially of the Greeks. Immediately after its full legislation, the Christian church attacks the Gentiles, non-Christians. The Council of Ans- Syra denounces the worship of goddess Artemis. The emperor constantly declares Christianity is the only official religion of the Roman Empire. In Didyma, Minor Asia, he sacks the oracle of the god Apollo and tortures the pagan priests to death. He also evicts all non-Christian peoples from Mount Anthos and destroys all the local Hellenic temples. Constantine, following the instructions of his mother Helen, destroys the temple of the god Asclepius and Aishii, so see a many temples of the goddess Aphrodite, Jerusalem, and Faka, Mambre, Phoenicia, Baalbek, etc. Constantine steals the treasures and statues of the pagan temples of Greece to decorate Nova Roma, Constantinople, the new capital of his empire. Notice he did name it after Jesus. Constantine sacks many pagan temples of minor Asian Palestine and orders the execution by crucifixion of all magicians and soothsayers. This is the same Constantine who had his wife drown in an overheated bath. But Christians go, he stopped crucifixions, yay! I'm telling you, biblical literacy, spiritual literacy is highly prized in the Christian church. So, a lot of people who celebrate Constantine are pro-life, but clearly Constantine is not pro-life because remember two words, crucifixion, execution. Crucifixion is a form of execution. Wasn't Jesus executed by crucifixion? So, you're insulting Jesus by having other people die the way he did, similarly. 
Martyrdom, martyrdom of the Neoplatonic philosopher Sulpatris. Flavius Julius Constantius uh, persecutes all the soothsayers and the Hellenists. Many Gentile Hellenes are either imprisoned or executed. New large scale persecution against non Christian peoples in Constantinople. Banishment of the famous orator Labanius, accused as a magician. But the word magi. You know, the men who allegedly discovered baby Jesus's greatness. Sounds like that could have been occultish. An edict of Constantius orders the death penalty for all kinds of worship and sacrifice and idols. Hmm. Maybe Islamophobia comes from centuries of persecutions of non-Christians. A new edict of Constantius orders the closing of all pagan temples. Some of them are profaned and turned into brothels or gambling rooms. Executions of pagan priests, first burning of libraries in various cities of the empire. The first line factories are built next to closed pagan temples. A large part of sacred Gentile architecture is turned into line. A new edict of Constantinus orders the destruction of the pagan temples and execution of all idolaters. Constantius, this right was it, outlaws all methods of divination, astrology not excluded. Wow, this is why science and religion have been in a, a bloody wrestling match for centuries. In Scythopolis, Syria, the Christians organized the first death camps for the torture and executions of all the arrested non-Christians from all around the empire. Religious tolerance and restoration of the pagan cults declared in Constantinople uh, December 11, 361 by the pagan emperor Flavius Claudius Julianus. Assassination of Emperor Julianus, 26 June. So we're going, this is go from all the way from 314 to uh, 988, okay? I actually put the article so you can read the dates yourself so you won't get confused. Emperor Flavius Jovianus orders the burning of the Library of Antioch, an imperial edict. Uh, September 11th, what is the death penalty for all Gentiles that worship their ancestral gods or practice divination? Ciliat omnibus perpetio div divinandi area uriocetis. Uh, Three different edicts for Feb February 4th, September 9th, December 23rd, ordered the confiscation of all properties of pagan temples and the death penalty for participation in pagan rituals, even private ones. But, I come to give you abundant life. I come to give you life and have it more abundant. I come to give you abundant life. That can't happen if I'm violently removed from the planet Earth. An imperial edict uh, November 17th forbids the Gentile pagan officers in the army to command Christian soldiers. Balance orders a tremendous persecution of non-Christian peoples in all the Eastern Empire. Antioch, among many other non-Christians, the ex-governor Vedustius and the priests Hilarius and Patricius are executed. 
Tons of books are burnt in the squares of the cities of the Eastern Empire. All the friends of Julianus are persecuted, Aurebasius, Salustius, Pegasius, etc. The, the philosopher Simonides is burned alive, and the philosopher Maximus is decapitated. Valens orders the governor of Minor Asia to exterminate all the Hellenes and all documents of their wisdom. New prohibition of all divination methods to turn pagan, pagani, villagers, equivalent to the modern insult peasants is introduced by the Christians to the mean non-believers. See what I mean? The prosperity gospel may have been inspired by that. But before you get angry, Jesus was not a member of the 1% news on earth. In fact, Jesus was literally dirt poor, sleeping in the homes of strangers because he had to depend on their kind to take care of him from the age of 30 to his dying violent day on the crucified cross. The Temple of God, Asclepius in Epidaurus, Greece, is closed down by the Christians. On February 27, Christianity becomes the exclusive religion of the Roman Empire by an edict of Emperor Flavius Theodosius, requiring that all the various nations which are subject to our claimants in moderation should retain in the profession of that religion, which was delivered to the Romans by the divine apostle Peter. Non-Christians are called loathsome, heretics, stupid, and blind. Is that how Jesus treated people in his day that were called sinners? No. Their, their heart is far from Jesus and their lips do not praise him. Referring to the ones who call themselves Christians is who I'm talking about. In another edict, Theodosius calls insane those that do not believe in the Christian God and outlaws all disagreements with the church dogmas. Ambrosius, Bishop of Milan, starts destroying all the pagan temples of this area. Christian priests lead the mob against the temple of goddess Demeter in Elysius and try to lynch the Heriophant Nestorius in Priscus. The 95-year-old Heriophant Nestorius ends the Eleusinian mysteries announces the predominance of mental darkness over the human race. On May 2nd, Theodosius deprives all of their rights the Christians had that returned back to the on May 2nd, Theodosius deprives all their rights the Christians that return back to the pagan religion. All the Eastern Empire, the pagan temples and libraries are looted or burned down. On December 21st, Theodosius outlaws even simple visits to the temples of the Hellenes. In Constantinople, the temple of goddess Aphrodite is turned to a brothel and the temples of Sun and Artemis to stables. Hallelujah, glory to Yahweh is imposed in the Christian mass. Yahweh, God, there you go. Theodosius orders the Praetorian prefect Martinus Sinitius, a dedicated Christian, to cooperate with the local bishops and destroy the temples of the pagans in northern Greece and minor Asia. Martinus Sinegius, encouraged by his fanatic wife and bishop St. Marcellus with his gangs up the score, the countryside, and sack and destroy hundreds of Hellenic temples, shrines, and altars. Among others, they destroy the Temple of Edessa, the Caparian of Ambrose, the Temple of Zeus in Ampemia, the Temple of Apollo in Didyma, and all the temples of Pal 
Myra. Thousands of innocent pagans from all sides of the empire suffered martyrdom in the notorious death camps of Sky Thopolis. The adults outlaws, June 16th, the care of the sacked pagan temples. Public talks on religious subjects are also outlawed by Theodosius. The old orator Libanius sends his famous epistle pro templis to Theodosius with the hope that the few remaining Hellenic temples will be respected and spared. Will be respected and spared. All non-Christian date methods are outlawed. Hordes of fanatic hermits from the desert flood the cities of the Middle East and Egypt and destroy statues, altars, libraries, and pagan temples and lynch the pagans. Theophilus, Patriarch of Alexandria, starts heavy persecution against non-Christian peoples. Turns the temple of Dionysus into a Christian church. Burns down the Mithraeum of the city. Destroys the temple of Zeus and Burlesques, the pagan priests, before they are killed by stone. The Christian mob profanes the cult images. Wait a minute. The statue of the goddess Aphrodite found at the Agora at Athens bears the hallmarks of Christian vandals, including crosses carved on the forehead and chin. The statue of Germanicus, Germanicus Julius Caesar, BC 15 to 1819, bears the hallmark of Christian vandals, including a cross carved on the forehead. Another example from Turkey, an identified statue of Livia Ducilla, wife of the Emperor Augustus, also bears the hallmark of Christian vandals. Um, okay, oh, when I say okay, I'm just like, this is just, uh. On February 24th, the new Edict of Theodosius purpose not only visits the pagan temples, but also looking at the vandalized statues. New heavy persecution crawling around the empire. In Alexandria, Egypt, pagans led by the philosopher Olympias revolt, and after some street fights, they locked themselves inside the fortified temple of the god Serapis. The Serapion. After violent siege, the Christians take over the building, demolish it, burn its famous library, profane the cult images. November 8th, Theodosius outlaws all the non Christian rituals and names them superstitions of the Gentiles. Gentilicia superstitio. New scale persecution, persecutions against pagans. The mysteries of Samothrace are ended and the priests are slaughtered. In Cyprus, local bishops St. Epiphanius and St. Tycon destroy almost all the temples of the island and exterminate thousands of non-Christians. The local mysteries of goddess Aphrodite are ended. Theodosius Edict declares the ones that won't obey Hatter Epiphanius have no right to keep living in that island. The pagans brought this emperor in the church in Petra, Heropolis, Raphia, Gaza, Baalbek, and other cities in the Middle East. The Pythian Games that act games and Olympic games are outlawed as part of the Hellenic idolatry. The Christians sacked the temples of Olympia. Two new edicts, July 22nd and, and August 7th, caused new persecutions against pagans. Raphinius, the eunuch prime minister of Emperor Flavius Arcadius, directs the hordes of the Baptist Goths led by Alarax, the country of the Hellenes. Encouraged by Christian monks, the barbarians sacked and burned many cities. Dion, Delphi, Magara, Corinth, Phineos, Argos, Nemea, Lycosoria, Sparta, Messene, Philgalia, Olympia, etc., slaughtered or enslaved innumerable Gentile Hellenes and burned down all the temples. Among others, they burned down the Lucenian sanctuary and burned alive all its priests, including the 
hired a young fan of my thrass hilarious. I'm kidding. That's the actual name. Not the word hilarious. H-I-L-A-R-I-U-S. That's how they spelled it. On December 7th, the new edict by Arcadius or Arcadius, okay, orders that paganism be treated as high treason. Imprisonment of the few remaining pagan priests in high hierophants. Demolish them. Flavius, Flavius Arcadius orders all the still standing pagan temples to be demolished. The Fourth Church Council of Carthage prohibits to everybody, including to the Christian bishops, to study the books of the pagans. Porphyrius, Bishop of Gaza, demolishes almost all the pagan temples of the city except nine of them that remain active. With a new edict July 13th, Flavius Arcadius orders all the still standing pagan temples, mainly in the countryside, to be immediately demolished. Bishop Nicetus destroys the oracle of the god Dionysus in Bassi and baptizes all the non-Christians of this era. The Christian mob of Carthage lynches non-Christians, destroys temples and idols, and dies into the local bishop Saint Fire sends his followers to lynch pagans into the monastery of the remaining nine still active temples of the city. The 15th Council of Chalcedon orders all the Christians that still keep good relations with their Gentile relatives to be excommunicated even after their death. John Chrysostom sends hordes of gray dressed monks armed with clubs and iron bars to destroy the idols in all the cities of Palestine. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom collects funds from rich Christian women to financially support the demolition of the, Helen, of the Hellenic temples. In Ephesus, he orders the destruction of the famous temple of goddess Artemis. In Salimus, Cyprus, St. Epiphanius and Eutychius continue the persecutions of the pagans and the total destruction of the temples and sanctuaries. The new edict outlaws once more all the non-Christian acts of worship. The Emperor of the Western Empire, Honorius, and Emperor of the Eastern Empire, Arcadius, ordered together all the sculptures of the pagan temples to be destroyed or to be taken away. Private ownership of pagan sculptures also outlawed. Local bishops lead new heavy persecution against pagans and new book burning. The judges that have pity for the pagans also are persecuted. St. Augustine, they put saint in quotations, Augustine massacres hundreds of protesting pagans in Kalama, Algeria. Another edict orders all methods of divination, including astrology, to be punished by death. In Alexandria, Egypt, Christian mob urged by the bishop Cyrillus attacks a few days before the Judeo-Christian Pascha Easter and cuts to pieces the famous and beautiful philosopher Hypatia. The pieces of her body carried around by the Christian mob in the streets of Alexandria are finally burned together with her books in a place called Sinaron. On August 30th, new persecution started against all the pagan priests of North Africa who end their lives either crucified or burned alive. The Inquisitor Hypatius alias the Sword of God exterminates the last pagans of Bithynia in Constantinople, December 7th. All non-Christian army officers, public employees, and judges are dismissed. Emperor Theodosius II declares June 8th that the religion of the pagans is nothing more than demon worship orders all those who persist in practicing it to be punished by imprisonment and torture. The temple of goddess Athena Parthenia on the Acropolis of Athens is sacked. The Athenian pagans are persecuted. On November 14th, a new edict by Thessalonians II orders death penalty for all heretics and pagans of the empire. 
Orangey Deism is considered a legal non-Christian religion. They had also accepted this is a new edict January 31st against the pagans incriminating their idolatry the reason of the recent plague. The Christians demolished all the monuments, altars, and temples of Athens, Olympia, and other Greek cities. Theodosius II orders all non-Christian books to be burned. All copies of Julian's work, which could be found, were destroyed and they would have been lost entirely if Bishop Cyril of Alexandria. 376 AD had not cited extracts from the first three of seven of Julian's books in his, refu- in, in his refuta- refutation of him, while admitting that he would not cite some of his arguments. All the temples of Aphrodisias, the city of the goddess Aphrodite, are demolished and, are, and all its libraries burned down. The cities were named Straf- Stavropolis, city of the cross. New Edict by Theodosius II, November 4th, emphasized that idolatry is punished by death. Sporadic persecution against the pagans of the Eastern Empire. Um, among others, the physician Jacobus, the philosopher Jesus are executed. Severanius, Herostios, Sosimus, Isidorus, and others are tortured and imprisoned. The proselytizer Conan and his followers exterminate the last non-Christians of Ambrose Island, Northeast Aegean Sea. The last worshippers of Lavranius Zeus are exterminated in Cyprus. The majority of the pagans of Minor Asia are exterminated after a desperate revolt against the emperor and the church. More underground pagan priests are discovered, arrested, burlesque, tortured, and executed in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, baptism becomes obligatory even for those that already say they are Christians. The Emperor of Constantinople, Anastasius, orders the massacre of the pagans in the Arabian city, Zora, um, and, the de- and the demolition of the temple of local god, the Androids. Emperor Judge Prada just outlaws the alternative Olympic Olympian Games of Antioch. He also orders the execution by fire, crucifixion tearing to pieces by wild beasts, or cutting to pieces by iron nails all who practice sorcery, divination, magic, or idolatry, prohibits all teachings by the pagans, the ones suffering from the blasphemous insanity of the Hellenes. Justinianus outlaws the Athenian, Athenian Philosophical Academy and has its property confiscated. And of course, the Ion, Ionis, Asiacus, a fanatic monk, leads a crusade against the pagans of minor Asia. Justinianus outlaws, I mean, Justinianus allows the inquisitor Ionis, Asiacus, to come to convert the pagans of Phrygia, Paria, and Lydia, minor Asia. Within 35 years of this crusade, 99 churches and 12 monasteries are built on the sites of demolished pagan of demolished women. Within 35 years of this crusade, 99 churches and 12 monasteries are built on the sites of demolished pagan temples. So, houses of worship called churches. are byproducts of paganism. So Christianity is a pagan religion. You kill the very people that you end up being like. 
Hundreds of pagans are put to death in Constantinople by the inquisitor Ionis Asiacus. Justin Tinius orders the notorious inquisitor Amantius to go to Antioch to find, arrest, torture, exterminate the last known Christian of the city and burn all the private libraries down. Mass arrests, burlesque, tortures, imprisonments, and executions of Gentile Hellenes in Athens, Antioch, Palmyra, and Constantinople. The Christians torture and crucify Gentile Hellenes all around the Eastern Empire. They exterminate the last non-Christian of Heliopolis, Baalbek. The Christian inquisitors attack a secret temple of Zeus in Antioch. The priests commit suicide, but the rest of the pagans are arrested. All the prisons of vice governor Anatolius included are tortured and sent to Constantinople to face trial. Sentenced to death, they are thrown to the lions. The wild animals, being unwilling to tear them to pieces, they end up crucified. Their dead bodies are dragged in the streets by the Christian mob and afterwards thrown unburied in the dump. New persecutions against the Gentile Hellenes by the Mariusius. In all the Eastern Empire, the Christian Jesus discovered pagan conspiracies, new storm of torture and executions. The Pentecto Council of Constantinople prohibits the remains of Calens, Bramalia, and Thestera and other pagan slash Dionysian celebrations. Celebration. The Gentile Hellenes of Macedonia, Cape Tyanara, Laconian Greece, resist successfully the temple of Tiresias, patriarch of Constantinople, to convert them to Christianity. Violent conversion of the last Gentile Hellenes of Lycenia by the Armenian Saint Nikon. So this is what has happened. I'm going to definitely put the article, like I said earlier, to show that a lot of people, including preachers and seminarians, know the truth but refuse to preach these things to the congregation because in their mind, anything that makes us Christians look bad, we say nothing about it, we do nothing about it. In fact, we encourage persecutory attitudes towards those who are non-believers and unbelievers still persist even on modern day. <sighs> Persecution of the Anabaptists. Excerpts from the book Many Nights in Europe by John Horsch. I'm going to put this in the article. This other article in the episode link too. Note, the term Anabaptist used to describe and define certain Christians in the Reformation era. These Christians rejected infant baptism, choosing instead believer's baptism. Since many of them had been baptized in their infancy, they chose to be baptized as believing adults, so their enemies called them Anabaptists, rebaptizers, for their crime of believer's baptism. Anabaptists were heavily persecuted during the 16th century into the 17th by both Roman Catholics and Protestants. It need scarcely be said that Roman Catholicism has always taken an attitude of intolerance and persecution toward all dissenters from its creed. On the contrary, the principal leaders in the Protestant Reformation movement, Luther and Zwingli, in the first period of the reformatory labors, condemned Romish intolerance. They were in the earlier period defendants the principles of liberty of conscience, whether they agreed to a thoroughgoing union of the church with the state, which meant the abandonment of the principles of religious liberty. Furthermore, the natural and inevitable consequence was the persecution 
of the Anabaptists by the established Protestant state churches. It is a fact recognized by many recent historians that the persecution of Anabaptists surpassed in severity the persecution of the early Christians by pagan Rome. Persecution began in Zurich soon after the Bethlehem had organized a congregation. Imprisonment of varying severity, sometimes in dark dungeons, was followed by executions. Within a short period, the leaders of the Brethren lost their lives in the persecution. Anabaptism was made a capital crime set on the heads of Anabaptists. To give them food and shelter was made a crime. The Duke of Bavaria in 1547 gave orders that the imprisoned Anabaptists should be burned at the stake unless they recanted, in, in which case they should be beheaded. In Catholic countries, the Anabaptists, as a rule, were executed by burning at the stake in Lutheran and Zwiglian states. Anabaptists are generally executed by beheading or drowning. Thousands sealed their faith with their blood. If it went, when all efforts to halt the movement proved vain, the authorities resorted to desperate measures. Armed executioners and mounted soldiers were sent in companies through the land to hunt down the Anabaptists and kill them on the spot without trial or sentence. The alt method of pronouncing sentence on each individual dissenter proved inadequate to experiment with faith. In the first week of Lent, 1528, King Ferdinand of, of Austria commissioned a company of executioners to root out the Anabaptist faith in his lands. Those who were overtaken in the highways and fields were killed with the sword. Others were dragged out of their houses and hanged on the doorposts. Most of them had gone into hiding in the woods and mountains in the forest near Langbach 17 were put to death. In the province of Swabia in South Germany, 400 mounted soldiers were, in 1528, sent out to put to death all Anabaptists of whom they put their hands. Somewhat later, the number of soldiers were commissioned was increased to 800 to 1,000. Various provinces, an imperial province marshal by the name of Berthold Ayakel, with his assistance, put many Anabaptists to death. On Christmas Day, 1531, he drove 17 men and women to a farmhouse in Wurttemberg and burned the building together with the inmates. 350 Anabaptists were executed in the Palatinate before the year 1530 at Isisham, the slaughterhouse of Alsace, as it was called, 600 were killed within a few years. Within six weeks, 37 were burned, drowned, or beheaded in Leeds in Austria. In the town of Kispos in the Tyrol, 68 were executed in one year. 210 or more were burned in the valley of the Inn River. The number of Anabaptist martyrs in the Tyrol and Gers were estimated at 1,000 in the year 1531. These low opinions of women, families, and femininity are the foundation of misogyny. Misogyny propels sexism. In fact, misogyny is the backbone of sexism. Misogynist customs are seen thriving on a social and cultural level throughout the ancient world and mythology, dominant world religion, and philosophy. Women and the feminine are depicted as surrogates of sin and error and grief. Pandora, first woman, is viewed as a beautiful evil, in quotations and the theogeny. In Biblical E, first woman blamed for the fall of man in Genesis myths. Tertullian, founder of Black Christian Western theology, regarded women as a temple built over a sewer, while Aristotle, one of the most influential philosophers of all time, took them inferior in deformities. These widely shared ancient prejudices have been consumed 
and reproduce generation after generation all the way to modern times. They form a foundation of ideas that birth religious, political, social, and sexual hostility uh, towards women. It's misogyny that tells us men that women are disposable items that exist for abuse or gratification. It's misogyny that degrades the very existence of women. This was written by, I like to credit people, uh, Sincere Carabo. She's a Christian writer for everyday feminism. Uh, I'm heartbroken. This is the HuffingtonPost.com. This is by Kate Bowler, who's a contributor, author, blessed the history of the American Prosperity Gospel, October 8, 2012, 355, East Coast Time, updated September 8, 2012. The blog. Sexual misconduct in the American Prosperity Gospel. Every Sunday, millions of American Christians attend a mega church that preaches a prosperity gospel of health, wealth, and happiness. But in this era of supersized banks and corporations, prosperity megachurches have become just another organization that assumes it's too big to fail. Victory Christian Center in Oklahoma is shaped by allegations that five of its employees failed to report the alleged rape of a 13-year-old girl by another church employee on church property. Tulsa police have accused a 20-year-old man of raping the girl in the stairwell of the megachurch August 13th before a church service. Police say that youth pastors John and Karika Daugherty, the son and daughter-in-law of the church's famous founders and three other employees, waited two weeks before notifying police. It's hardly the first time that prosperity megachurches have been reluctant to disclose sexual misconduct within their walls. Everyone remembers Jim Baker's tryst with Jessica Hand in the downfall of the Praise the Lord Empire, but ministries have stumbled for far less and far more. Bishop Eddie Long's multi-million dollar ministry has been stalled by allegations that young men in his church were coerced into sexual acts. The Atlanta Archbishop Earl Polk Jr. in his Cathedral of the Holy Spirit evaded decades of losses alleging sexual misconduct and financial propriety until he finally resigned in 2006. A year later, Falk revealed he had fathered a child with his brother's wife. Earlier this year, Bishop Joseph Walker, the 25,000-member Mount Zion Baptist Church in Nashville, was hit with multiple lawsuits alleging sexual misconduct with congregants. Though churches of all kinds weather ethical storms, few seem as committed to secrecy as prosperity megachurches. Why? The answer lies in part with the magnified role of the senior pastor. Prosperity pastors as, as larger than life figures. Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Creflo Dollar, and many others are living proof of the message that God does bless people with finances, health, and all-around success. Their biography is always available at the church bookstore or understood as spiritual revelations on how to put divine principles into action. The prosperity gospel breeds a culture which pastors are too important to be human, let alone to make mistakes. Their personal lives are their most valuable asset and are protected as such by church employees and congregants alike. Video surveillance of church properties prominent and pervasive ushers frequently double as security guards. 
I have spent almost 10 years earning interviews with these pastors. It can certainly be said that large organizations must naturally limit personal access, but prosperity megachurches bring a culture of cultivated distance. Office hours are virtually non-existent. Even long-time church members cannot expect to have a personal interaction with a beloved leader who they, who they refer to affectionately as the bishop. Brother so-so are sometimes daddy so and so. Or sometimes daddy so and so. Most believers seem to accept this distance as part of the price of following someone so important. But when rumors swirl about sexual impropriety, why don't church members speak out? The prosperity gospel's emphasis on positive thinking and positive speech makes it difficult to raise critical issues from the inside. I have heard hundreds of sermons cascading complainers as spiritual. Some pastors take this even further. Again, some pastors take this even further, differing from Psalm 100. Chapter 105, verse 15. They curse upon us as doubters who speak against the Lord's anointed. People who speak up run the risk of ostracization. Further, they might simply not have a theological framework by which to separate their faith in the message with their faith in the person. One more time. People who speak up run the risk of ostracization. Further, they might simply not have a theological framework by which to separate their faith in the message with their faith in the person. Charismatic newspapers have struggled with this for years. Is it unfaithful to report the moral failings of religious leaders? Nineteen ninety-three, the editor of Charisma magazine begged his Pentecostal readership to respond to the Earl Park scandal with a call for greater accountability, transparency, and church and transparency in church leadership. More than a decade would pass before Park's ministry finally caved under the weight of the allegations. Uh, In 2012, it is difficult to see how these questions of accountability have been thoughtfully adjudicated. One reason may be is that these organizations, trustees, and church boards are often stuck with friends and family members, making them far less willing to risk the consequences of whistleblowing. In the case of Victory, in the case of Victory Christian Center, Tulsa investigators fear that more victims will surface, but are concerned. They may be too reluctant to speak out. When a police detective contacted some of the victims, at least two parents refused to cooperate, saying the church was, quote unquote, handling the situation and they would, quote unquote, continue to pray about it. In an era of supersized organizations, it's time to hold prosperity megachurches to higher standards and demand a healthy dose of accountability. Kate Fuller is an assistant professor of the history of Christianity in the United States at Duke School and author of Blessed. This is the American Prosperity Gospel Oxford University Press for 
Pity the poor, pathetic evangelical men who are too weak to own their sexuality. This is a fast book, a fast bronc, a fast thrill. Wald Krasley Production presents Susan Hayward, Arthur Kennedy, Arthur Hunnicutt, or Robert Mitch and the Lusty Men. Evangelical preachers continue to churn out sermons, blog posts, and tweets about the deplorable, sinful dress of women. I'm almost 65 years old. Evangelical preachers have been preaching about short skirts, tight pants, shorts, cleavage, and a feminine shape for as long as I can remember. Clothing styles have changed over the years for evangelical preaching, especially in sex, SECTS, such as the independent fundamentalist Baptist IFB church movement has not. Preachers continue to demand that women be sexual gatekeepers, calling on them to keep the horn dog men around them from having lustful thoughts. Based on all this preaching and writing about female dress and male lustfulness, you would think evangelical churches are filled with whores and perverts. Let me share several examples of this kind of thinking. The first example comes from Kevin Shaw, the president of Foundations Baptist Fellowship International and the pastor of Northwest Valley Baptist Church in Glendale, Arizona. Shaw is a graduate of Bob Jones University, an uber-fund minimalist institution in Greenville, South Carolina. The goal of FBFI is to perpetuate the heritage of Baptist fundamentalism complete, intact, pure, and undiluted to succeeding generations of fundamentalists. Evidently, blaming women for lustful thoughts of men is part of perpetuating the heritage of Baptist fundamentalism. Yesterday, Shaw wrote a post titled, Beth Moore on Modesty and Creepy Righteous Dudes. Shaw spent a good bit of time holding men accountable for their sexuality. Unfortunately, he undid his admonition when he wrote, Spirituality is not immunity. Aha, if men were more spiritual, I would have to be less concerned about the modesty. Okay, it says, aha, if men were more spiritual, I have to be less concerned about the modesty of my dress. That is not how it works. I want Christian women to understand that the spiritual walk of a man does not desensitize him to visual sexual temptation. In fact, it might make him more sensitive to it. Why is this? Uh, the godly man does not fill his mind with inappropriate images of women on his computer or TV screen. The man that tells you that immodesty has no real spiritual impact on him is either lying or so filling his mind with inappropriate imagery that he now lacks sensitivity to the visual stimuli around him. There's the possibility that he simply does not have as much sex drive as other men, but the one thing I can guarantee you is that his walk with the Lord will not make him immune. Young Christian men are especially vulnerable. So if that is the case, what does God expect men to do in the face of visual temptation? Look away? God expects godly men to look away when confronted with visual temptation. In some cases, this might require making a very conscious choice to focus on a woman's face only. In other cases, they might be looking away from her entirely. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a woman very beautiful to behold, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. Uh, you already know where I'm staying, where I stand with this, with my sign. Uh, many argue that David should have been with his men in the field at this time, maybe that was true. Some argue that David should have not been lounging around his house at this time of day, maybe that was true. What I know to be true is that when David caught a glimpse of Bathsheba, he should have controlled his thinking, averted his gaze, J-C-E, and not set his eyes on her long enough to assess her beauty. Walk away. If the situation demands that God expects godly men to remove themselves from the company of those that are tempted to tempt him, as Joseph did when tempted by Potiphar's wife, Genesis chapter 39, verse 7 to 15, he must do this even if it causes defense as he did with Potiphar's wife. But Potiphar tried to rape Joseph. This is not the same thing as temptation. 
One is about world domination. The other is consensual. Rape is world domination. The quote-unquote tempted, that's consensual, okay? So they're never the same thing. He must do this even to cause offense as he did with Potiphar's wife. Stay away. Walking away might also mean staying away. The foolish young men of Proverbs chapter 6 made the fatal error of going by the corner of the woman who was dressed for and seeking for sin. Here's a sincere question. What do, you, what do you think God thinks about a woman who dresses in a way that forces most faithful sons to look away? Walk away, stay away. God does not call on women to dress to please men. He does call on women to dress to please him. I am discouraged by the growing disregard that Christian women in our own fundamental churches have for their brothers in Christ. The men aren't going to say anything about it to women or not their wives or daughters and certainly don't enjoy people like Beth Moore calls and preach. We do not need to be catered to just because we are men, but we are God's children. We matter to him. So again, I ask, what do you think God thinks? Michelle asks, what do you think God thinks? Of, you know what? I'm, uh, we already know what he asks. Okay. Neither shall nor anyone else for that matter can know what God is, thinks about anything. Memo to Pastor Shao, the Bible is the words of men and the voice in your head is yours. The issue starts and ends with men. I have seen my fair share of attractive women over the years, both in church and in the world. At no time did I ever blame women for me thinking they are sexually desirable. Have I ever had to turn away? Sure, that's usually due to me snickering at a woman with a size 20 body stuff and a size 10 pair of leggings. Not sexy, but damn funny. I accept that sexuality is part of the human experience and it's up to each of us to own our sexuality and control our response to men and slash women we find appealing. And because we live in a gender-inclusive world, I accept that sexuality is part of the human experience and it's up to each of us to own our sexuality and control our response to even non-binary people we find appealing. And also another thing is that I don't refer to God as him, her, his. I'm just reading what was written by what a um, a fundamentalist pastor was saying. You would think that those shouts, you would think that those shout calls faithful sons of feel the Holy Ghost their teacher and God would be able to control their thoughts. If they can't follow shout's advice, they should look away, walk away, stay away. See how easy that is? Instead of blaming women for male weakness, how about teaching men to be grown-ups if they can't or won't do? Tell them they can't play with the big heads. I left Christianity almost 14 years ago. Since then, I have had ample opportunity to be around attractive women. I've had women hit on me, including a 70-something-year-old woman who came up to me at the grocery store told me what a fine-looking man I was. She turned to my wife, Polly, and said, you sure lucky to have a man like that on your arm. As the quote-unquote real Santa Claus, I've had women get quite up close and comfortable with me. One woman in front of 1,500 people at a high school basketball game I was shooting plopped down on my lap and told me what she wanted for Christmas. Fortunately... It wasn't me. Another woman also at a basketball game snuggled right up next to me, put her hand on my leg, and shared her Christmas wishes with me. To be fair, at the same game, a 16-year-old T 
teen boy on a dare from his friend sticker saying, at no time did I feel out of control sexually. Uncomfortable? Sure, but I'm a big boy. And quite frankly, anyone means to accept me thinking I'm a nice looking man is good for my self-esteem. Polly and I in the sunset of life occasionally frequent upscale restaurants, bars, and clubs. We see lots of attractive people, people on dates looking to hook up or out with their friends. We are people watchers. It is not uncommon for us to talk about the people around us, men, women, and non-binary persons. Both of us are secure enough sexually and maritally that we can point out someone we find attractive. Innocent, fun banter, which we never could have had as blood-bought, sanctified, sexually repressed, born-again Christians. At no time have we had thoughts of hitting on someone or having a quickie with them in the restaurant. We have a simple rule. It's okay to look, just don't catch. On to my second example. My friend Ben Barwick recently wrote several posts on modesty. He could read them here, modesty, modesty, fake Dr. David T slash David Dyson slash theology slash archaeology slash twos, the Indian, who's obsessed with Ben's writing and my response to typical fashion of Ben's pose. You know what? I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't want to read them. I, I don't. It's, it's the same bullshit. I, you know what? I'm just, I like uh, Bruce's words and we're just going to stick to it. Much like Shao, T gives a perfunctory evangelical disclaimer that says, I'm speaking to men and women. However, real life applications, most of the preaching blog posts and pictures are directed at women, not men. If women would only cover up their bodies from head to toe and de-emphasize their bodies, Christian men wouldn't less anymore. At the very least, we wouldn't have thoughts of fucking Sister Sally or Preacher Bob on the front pew during the sermon on Sunday morning. He said banking. I said fuck it to put more emphasis on it. And let's not forget that Shal and T aren't talking about Christian women who are strolling into church on Sundays wearing clothing better suited for Saturday nights at the corner pub. What's causing these pathetic evangelical men to less is any cleavage, long, or form-fitting clothing. These women aren't streetwalkers parading themselves down the aisle of the First Baptist Church. They're women who just want to dress nicely. Few of them think, I think I will wear blank so Deacon Joe will feel a bit of Holy Ghost staring when he gazes on my comeliness. There may be some of that going on with sexually aware teenagers and young adults. Most women just want to look nice while they worship the God who supposedly looks at their hearts, not their clothing. Women aren't the problem. Men are. Men such as Shaolin and T need to quit neighboring juvenile behavior. Men need to be taught to own their sexuality. They need to learn how to be in the world, but not of the world. <coughs> Excuse me. Men need to be taught to own their sexuality. They need to learn how to be in the world, but not of the world. Attractive women are everywhere. Attractive men are everywhere. Attractive non-binary people are everywhere. Unless we want to lock ourselves in a darkened room somewhere with no outside exposure, but even then you have your thoughts. Let's learn how to successfully navigate a world filled with sexual beings. Wow. Well, I guess I can read it. Okay. I was able to read more. I said, okay, I'll read it. It has always struck as a strange that women would listen to certain things from up they did that women should expose themselves more in public. According to one story, a husband put up a photo of his wife in not so modest clothing as a defensive strategy. We do not think much of that husband. The only reason we can think of that would explain why certain men would defend Women's behavior of stripping down is at their purpose. It's not as altruistic as they let on. 
they're not really defending the right of women to dress in as feet clothes. They're defending their right to ogle such women, or it seems as they produce no real legitimate argument to support their point of view. The one piece of evidence is to go to one that is tired and worn out. M.M. blames the Bible and other religions for the reason um, people do not want women to expose themselves in public. Why blame the Bible after all instructions guiding both men and women to holy behavior, stripping down, taking photos of one's body, male and female, then posting those photos for the world to see is not modest or holy behavior. Sexual misconduct comes from letting the sin nature rule one's life instead of Christ ruling it and following Christ's instructions. It does not come from the way men and women dress up. There's a right and wrong way to dress in public. Um, these certain men and women do not care about dressing the right way, encouraging women to do the same. They need to be avoided, not listened to. The right way to dress is to be modest at all times, especially when strangers are going to be looking at your images and body. Again, this applies to both men and women. The Bible is not to be blamed for sexual sins. It's instructions when it comes to men and women relating to each other, often ignoring the rules and the rules of people like, like pay, Playboy, Playgirl. Hustler and other psychosocials are the ones that are followed. Um, if there's a problem, blame the source, not the one book that is trying to keep men and women safe. But to M.M., the Bible is always to blame because he seen other men like him is more moral than God. Lustful thoughts can also lead to other sins. If David is a prime example of when he used to view Bathsheba taking a bath. She was not innocent either at the time of her bath location it could have been meant to catch the eye of King. David raped Bathsheba is what has been proven to be true. Power dynamic before you refute. Willfully leading people to sin is just as wrong. When men and women post these X-rated images or dressing in an X-rated manner in public, they're willfully leading people to sin. Bruce behind that statement that they actually know what they're doing and do it anyway. Men will find ways to indulge in lustful thoughts irrespective of a woman's state of dress. They, the thoughts themselves were the natural biological urges. Modesty too. Now, M.M. is wrong here. It is not coming from a purely biological urge, nor are those urges always natural most of the time. Those thoughts come from the sin nature. Without conquer them, they can lead to more disastrous sins that do not end well for, for anyone. This demand that women be modest to protect the thoughts of men is overbearing. It's also pointless modesty too. One, the demand is for both men and women to dress modestly too. It is not pointless. Defeating sin is a very valuable effort. It needs to be done if one wants to be holy and have an impact for Christ. Should a woman's outfit Um, did the, uh, one, it says, should, okay, defeating sin is a very valuable effort needs to be done if one wants to be holy and have an impact for Christ. Should a woman's outfit be seen as an excuse for such behavior? Is that reasonable to Brian? He demeans men and women by thinking along such lines. His message fails to teach men to be responsible for their own actions. It's unfair to force women to be held accountable for a man's inability to behave. We should put such notions to the bonfire, modesty trap, modesty one. No one should make excuses, no one should point the finger, but that does not mean that both men and women have permission to disobey God and dress modestly. Do not let women off the hook here. Some ladies tonight have broken box and very last full of adulterers and women commit many uh, sexual sins while attending them. You can say that the bars are anticipated in these 
Blazing is not too wicked, leading you into sin. That is not right either. Those events are certainly not biblical or done in obedience to God's instructions. Christians are not just blaming women. They blame men as well as many men go to the same beaches with the same lack of clothing and intent from women. That is not right either. God's commands and instructions do not stop at the beach parking lot. While we are allowed to enjoy the weather and the sun, we need to do so for the glory of God and not be people to sin. Modesty works both ways. Both men and women should be mindful of how their dress and actions affect others. It's not that for someone is weak-minded, fortunately, well, and others, modesty is going to protect everyone from sin and in their sin. I would say that um, I agree with Bruce Gerenser. Enough said. Okay, I have to, oh, I'm going to be able to read this. Is it biblical to call the wife of a pastor, elder, bishop, or first lady of the church? It's really simple. Um, the practice of calling the wife of an elder of the local church, first lady, or first lady of the church, or the short lady, person, slash, or last name does not come from the Bible. No precedent for it can be found in the Bible, and the practice is, in fact, antithetical to such principles as servanthood and impartiality among followers of Christ. So basically, it's not good. And I just wanted to quickly address that. Now, I'll say this. The tradition of calling the pastor by first lady borrows from the secular practice of giving special distinction and honor to the wives of governmental chiefs or heads of states, presidents, prime ministers, governors, etc. The reasoning is that since honor is given to the office of the president of the United States, for example, the then honor shall also be given to a spouse, thus first lady Michelle Obama, first lady Laura Bush. This reason is extended to church settings. Since pastors are doing a mighty work for God and any earthly head of state, surely they and their wives deserve at least as much honor. This The thought seems to be what's good for the president and first lady of the White House is good for the pastor and first lady of God's house. Um, in many churches, the first lady is often deemed the leader herself with decision-making authority in almost every facet of the ministry. By mere virtue of whom she is married to, she is allowed to have almost equal said everything that goes on in the ministry. That is not the same case in every local church, but it's a widening trend. Using titles pastor and first lady easily evolved into, easily evolved into causing both pastors. Yeah, co-pastoring is not um, found in the scriptures, I know, I read them. Um, the reason no one in church should be called first, let me put the following. First, one, I think you should be called, um, by your name. Or, you know, like, Miss, Mrs., you know, that, that thing. That title, Miss Mrs. would be better. God, the, the reason known in, in the church we call first lady includes the following. God is the one who appoints officers in the church and the people to, to fill them. Often being married to the pastor is a, is a, a so-called first lady's only qualification for a position of special honor or authority. This in turn means that some local churches have women leaders who, you know, just like any other gender leaders and the church. I mean, we have men, women, non-binary people who aren't equipped by the Holy Spirit or spiritually mature who could bring much harm to the ministry. 
It's first lady of the church is a man-made title, born out of the traditions of men. No matter how well meaning the traditions of men do not take precedence over what God provides in the Bible. The use of the title first lady of the church often extends to calling the pastor's children first son or first daughter. But God's church is not a family dynasty and the elders of the church are not heads of state. They and their wives and offspring are not superior to anyone else in their church who's fulfilling their own God-given role. While it's only natural to give more attention and honor to the most visible family local congregation, bestowing royal treatment upon them creates a hierarchical structure that is diametrically opposed to the spirit of humility, servanthood, impartiality, mutual respect that all believers are to give one another regardless of who they are. Examples, Luke chapter 6, verse 31, Romans chapter 9, verse 18, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 25, Ephesians chapter 13, verse 16. Distinguishing a pastor's wife by calling a first lady gives her an unnecessary, unnecessary level of prestige among other women in the church, each of whom is just as much a lady as she. To refer to anyone as first and then to treat her accordingly sets a precedent of special privilege and entitlement that have no place in the church of God. Um... No one in the church should be seeking after titles among fellow believers, especially the title that says first of anything. Similarly, no one in the church should use titles as any other means of making an unbiblical distinction of superiority among believers. It is biblical to give honor when it is due, but certainly there are other biblically accepted ways to show appreciation that don't involve adding to or contradicting the Bible, God's word, as they as believers call it on the key offices in the local church of sufficient second Timothy chapter 3 verse 15 to 17 no one should assume a title the Lord did not confer to them upon them the Lord did not confer upon them also the truth is that the last shall be first the first shall be last which chapter 30 verse 30 should, should discourage anyone who wants to call a pastor's wife first lady Finally, sometimes the expectations concerning the first lady of the church end up placing unfair pressure on the pastor's wife. Sometimes all she generally wants to be is her husband's helpmate and to pray to each other women and serve her church family. The Lord has equipped and directed her without any special title. We must be careful not to let congregations impose extra biblical expectations on pastors and their families. Um, this, these, this is, I'm, I'm speaking to a traditional audience when I talk this way so I'm not being phobic or uh, excluding at all um, the first lady title often displays itself in ungodly competition among believers in the parading of the flesh in the church for instance in many churches the so called first lady is expected and she expects herself to distinguish herself by wearing the best clothes showcasing the best hat purse, shoes and jewelry and having the best hair it's even called first lady style in some circles but it's antithetical to First Peter chapter three, verse three through four. Um, and this is not just for women. This is for all genders in the church. I would say to women, men, and non-binary people in the church, your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. Others should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle, quiet spirit, which is great worth in God's sight any gender who is that serious about um, being in the church should apply by that, not just women in the church. Um,
I think marriage and ministry should obviously separate. And the church had no first lady in the early church. Those offices that are listed, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are not titles for offices or functions. And um, Paul lists the various offices that were established by Christ for the purpose of the church pertaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Not once in the office role or title of first lady ever mentioned. This passage does not even mention a pastor's wife. Um, find, first, there are no instructions in the Bible on conferring the title first lady on anyone. There's no office as well as first lady in local church. And remember what Paul listed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. Plus, when you're first lady, often you treat it with disrespect. You get insults, you get hardships, you get harsh judgments, you get um, verbal and written and nonverbal attacks. You have many people who you want to have extra marital detriments with your husband and um, in some cases that happens in other cases it doesn't happen but it doesn't mean temptation does not occur or even hurt um, and so often you can pair to other women in the church so these are things that people have to really take seriously and I'm glad I'm educating myself on what um, is really going on. A lot of people would, would be mad that I'm even uh, bringing this up, but I don't give a shit. I don't give a fuck, and I don't give a fuck. So... You know, just thinking about somebody very close to me, which means that they brought more things to my test about religion. So, this won't be my last episode, but tomorrow's will be for sure. <laughs>